0: This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Chris Sinzak and Aaron Camaro.
1: All right, we're back. That's right. It's time. Finally here. Yes, Decibel Geek Podcast time. My name is Aaron Camaro, and I'm joined, as always, by my awesome friend and kick-ass co-host, Mr. Chris Sinzak. How are you
2: doing, brother? I'm good. It feels like I just saw you.
1: I was going to say, long time no (laughs) see. Yeah, we actually got to hang out together a little bit today.
2: Yeah, it was nice. We had a nice lunch of Mexican food with uh, the one and only Michael Wagner.
1: Yeah, you can't beat chimichangas and Michael Wagner. The combination never loses. But yeah, after last week's episode, we did our producer switch, and a lot of people really dug that and had fun with it, you know, and had some cool suggestions of their own. But Michael Wagner... Actually heard the episode and heard us talking about him, you know, and how he came up twice on the episode, and he reached out to us, and we got together for some lunch today. It was super cool.
2: It was really cool, and uh, yeah, he's enjoying retirement, and uh, had a great talk, and he always has great stories, like, he, you know, as usual, And uh, but yeah, it was a great lunch. It was, uh, it was nice to get out of work for a little while and, and hang out with you guys.
1: Yeah, it was very cool, man. I really enjoyed it. That guy's the best.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: So speaking of that, you know, we really did have a good time last week, and it was a fun idea after all, you know, because I don't know, when when sometimes these ideas hit me like that, it just harkens back to being a KISS fan, you know, and how KISS always said, we want to be the band that we would want to see. And that's always kind of been our motto here at Decibel Geek is, you know, we want to be the kind of podcast that Chris and I would actually want to listen to. And when it's a cool, fun, open-ended conversation like that, you just can't beat it because just a couple of dudes hanging out, talking about rock and roll, and we know that's what you guys love about us, and it was fun to do that one.
2: Yeah, and I had several people reach out to say that we should do that again, so I, I think it's definitely a winner that we could revisit.
1: Right on. Well, I'll tell you this. We don't have any reviews this week, but we did get a lot of feedback on Facebook about the episode. I know, Chris, you got some of the uh, some of the comments lined up.
2: Yeah, I thought we'd go through some of the feedback, because you know, we'd love to hear back from you guys, and uh, we want to kind of spotlight that a little bit. So uh, Mighty K, Kristen Schimbeck, she uh, said, Chris, I'm listening to the new Iron Maiden. I'll let you know if you're wrong or not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she said, I hate admitting this, but I'm not wowed by the new album either. I can't put my finger on exactly why. It's not that I think it's bad. It's just giving me... And she put some symbols, but I don't know what that Uh, means. Oh, it's giving me hot and cold, I think, is what she meant, I Uh, think. I was hoping I wouldn't agree with you, LOL. Um,
1: Yeah, I still, I'm telling you, people, you got to give it a few listens. The first time I spun through it, I don't know, it didn't really jump out on me, but I kept it in the car, and I kept letting it roll through and roll through and then swapped out for the other disc and let that roll through a bunch of times. And after a while, it really grows on you.
2: Mm, not so much for me i've tried um i'll try again i'm going on vacation next week i'll probably give it a shot while i'm on the beach or something maybe that'll help uh so also she said um can't disagree on the michael wagner suggestions i hope you guys get him on the show again soon i know he retired hopefully he's down for some more albums unleashed um yeah we we talked to michael about that and you know we might have an announcement in the future and then uh, Mark Alden Taylor checked in and said, I kid you not, right after I listened to this, at the end, you were talking about Rock and Ron, shuffled some rush, and this came on, and the quote, lyric quote, suddenly you were gone from all the lives you left your mark upon, from the song After Image.
1: Yeah, that definitely fits our Rock and Ron Runyon. You know, and you've got some cool news to announce about that while we're talking about Ron.
2: Yeah, um Anthony Carter posted about it on uh, October 8th, which is not really long from now or when we're recording this. Uh, you know everybody knows that Ron and Anthony were friends and also um Wolfpack Productions, which puts on a lot of shows in Denver, very loyal to Ron and and Ron always was good friends with those guys. So they're putting on a concert as a kind of a tribute to Rock and Ron. Uh, with Anthony doing a a solo set, uh, Wild America, Angelus, and Nine Tenths of the Law. Uh, It's at the venue in Denver on October 8th. So uh, if you're in that area, please check it out, because I'm sure it's going to be an awesome show.
1: Yeah, and much love to the people in Denver, the rock and rollers there, that knew and loved Rock and Ron Runyon, just like all we did here in the podcast world. So yeah, if you're in that area... Get to the venue, check out Anthony Corder and all those other great bands. And you know what? That's the way Rock and Ron would want it. You guys get out there and party and have a good time.
2: Yeah, I think that's cool. I also think it's cool that a band called Wild America is opening for Anthony Quarter.
1: That's a trip, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Influenced, maybe?
2: Yeah, probably. Um, that means
1: they're probably damn good, too.
2: They are. I've actually listened to some of their stuff. They're really right good.
1: Right on. I'll check that out.
2: So a little bit more of the... Uh, Feedback from last week. Pull up my screen here because my computer wants to be a moron. Um, also, um, Mark Alden Taylor says, For the Maiden, uh, Andy Sneap is a, is great, but Nick Linux told Neil how to play. Uh, I think that was on Clockwork Angels, if I remember right. I think he wouldn't be scared of Maiden and would whip them into shape. Plus, he's a prog rock guy, which is what Maiden is doing now. I think that Nick Rasculinics would be a good producer for them also.
1: Yeah, yeah. there's all kinds of different ways you can go. That's like Jeff Goss said, I like most of the ideas, but I would not want Ezra near flush the fashion. I'd like to hear Michael Wagner do the ultimate sin. Hey, there you go. I like That'd that. Cool. He says, I like the maiden, but it would be cool to hear sneak production on it, maybe with some trimming. And he said it was a cool episode. Thanks, Jeff.
2: Yeah, and then uh, Mighty K also checked in. I never really paid attention to the producer of any album. I don't know know, of the ones Decibel Geeks interviewed.
1: It's the only ones you need to know.
2: Yeah, and you mentioned that uh, this proves how important a producer can be. Uh
1: Most definitely, and we found that out last week, so thanks to everybody that got on the Facebook and left us some comments about that. We love to see it. We love to interact with you guys. You know, this is the rock and roll family that we all kind of created with this, so, you know, it's good to communicate with each other on the Facebook. That's a great way to do it. Give our page a like. We're only like a couple of hundred away from 8,000 likes on Facebook. I like to brag about that shit to my coworkers because they really don't understand me until I tell them shit like that.
2: (laughs) And no bots helped us.
1: (laughs) That's right. Bot free since the very beginning, and that's the way we like it. So if you're a real true human being out there on the Internet and you love rock and roll and you love podcasting, give our Facebook page a like and then get in on the conversation. we got a Facebook group out there and you can also become a decibel geek vip which entitles you to extra content that we're getting back in the swing of things now we got some good stuff lined up and we just made some releases for our vips with uh, the latest episode of the torpedo dudes Mm -hmm. and also we got some chris and aaron show coming your way too so if you're a decibel geek vip and you are with us on patreon Get ready for that. If you're not and you need more Decibel Geek in your life, well, that's the perfect way to do it. Become a Decibel Geek VIP over at patreon.com. All different levels, all different cool things you can get. Check it out. You're probably going to like it. And, I mean, you know, like I said, we didn't get any reviews this week, but if you want to leave us a review, there's three great ways to do it. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which that's a big one. We like that. There's a site called PodChaser. That you can review down to the individual episodes and that's pretty cool too you know and also on Facebook you can leave us a recommendation these things are all great because there's other people out there maybe just discovering podcasts it's amazing how much this whole medium has grown since 10 years ago when we first started doing it a lot less nowadays you have to explain to somebody what it is you know
2: yeah, I mean, it's right yeah. there with the regular uh, mainstream media these days. So uh, yeah, if, if you're new to the show, welcome. If you've been here for all 10 years, then thanks for sticking by us.
1: You know, if you want to leave us a review, it's a great thing to do because there's other people out there discovering podcasts and looking for us. And you can help them find us. The party grows. It's awesome. Other people we love, we love them a lot. They're our number one people. They're the greatest Those are Geeks of the Week. These people took last week's episode, the producer switch, and they shared it on their socials, whether it's Twitter or Facebook. You're sharing it and retweeting it, and when you do that from the original post, then you are an honorary Geek of the Week.
2: Geeks of the Week this week are Adam Cox, Rockin' Ron Runyon, Brent Tibbetts, Mike Tyler, Cobras and Fire Podcast, Matt Ashcraft, Kevin Williams, Mark and Jerry B.S. Sessions, Shane Aber, Keith Rockford, Jay Shabluski, Sit and Spin with Joe, Aaron Baker, Joseph Capone, Wayne Gross, Shay Hargett, David Cathy, Mark Parnell, David Glenn, Kristen Schembeck, David Kathy, Scott Crouch, and as always, the, the Mooger Fugger.
1: That's right. Those are our people right there. We love them a lot because they shared last week's episode. If you want to hear your name read right at the top of the show, it's an honorable and prestigious thing. We know it could be you. All you gotta do is just that. You'll hear your name read right, right here at the top of the show next week. Yes. We are part of Pantheon Podcasts. It's a great big thing. It's awesome. It's like if you took and just gathered up all the best music podcasts and put them under one awesome umbrella. That would be Pantheon Podcasts. So if you or anybody else you know are looking for great music-related podcasts, that's your one-stop shop, baby. Get on over to Pantheon. Check out their roster. I know you're going to find something you're going to love. It's just the best. That's why we're there, right? Yeah, it wouldn't be any good if we weren't there. So we're all in it together. Check out Pantheon. And now, after all that, we got (laughs) something cool for you today. Yeah,
2: this was uh, an interview that, you know, and this is how it works sometimes with us is, you know, it all starts with us being KISS nerds. So it's not really a KISS-related interview, but there's plenty of KISS stories in this. Um, I found this crazy interview from 1990 that Eric Carr did promoting Hot in the Shade on this very small college station out in New York. And in the interview, there's this guy with this thick New York accent in the background that was the label rep, and his name gets mentioned during the interview. And the interview was kind of a train wreck. And I was just like, I wonder what that guy thinks of this interview. And then I, I looked him up, and I found him, and then it turns out his name is Munzee Ritchie. And he's the head of skateboard marketing, and he's been like a, a radio pitchman for record labels for like what 30 plus years now yeah. and and uh and i so i facebook friended him and i was like D- what do you remember about this and then i mentioned i was like oh well you you, you know with your history uh i think you would have some great stories do you want to come on the show and he's like yeah why not so we had a great talk with him
1: yeah he's a super cool dude and man munsey he's the real deal and you're gonna find that out right now so before we get into it anything else
2: i think that's it
1: let's rock and roll the Decibel Geek Podcast way. Here we go.
2: So Munzee Richie, um, good to have you on the show. The reason I I found you is uh, we're both KISS nerds and I always go looking for like old radio interviews with the band members and there's this. Uh, it's kind of become an infamous Eric Carr interview from 1990 that he did with a show called Midnight Metal, and it's kind of infamous because it it it, ter- it turns into a train wreck kind of quickly with you know people calling and prank calling and stuff like that. And but Eric just rolls with the punches. And uh, but your your voice comes up and the guy on the radio mentions your name. So as a Kiss nerd, that where we want to learn about every person ever connected to Kiss. I looked your name up, find you on Facebook, friend you, and then you wanted to come on and talk and uh then I look up skateboard marketing and find all this different all these great artists that you've worked with, so it just seemed like a natural thing to invite you invite you to have you on the show,
3: yeah, dude, thanks for having me, brother. I love
1: doing podcasts. they're a lot of fun that's the way nowadays you know if you want to talk about rock and roll you're not gonna you know, I and we'll find out from you. I gotta imagine it's a little bit tougher nowadays for radio stations and there's no such thing as headbanger's ball or MTV anymore. So man, the podcasts are here for you.
3: Well, yeah, I, I mean, obviously there are video outlets. I mean, there's not a dedicated show. You don't have it you don't have headbangers ball anymore. You don't have a lot of the other outlets, but I mean I think like at least in today's climate, most bands know. And especially the fans know, you know, you want your video to be heard. You know, everybody's going to go to YouTube. They're going to pimp it out on their social media pages. And if you're just luckily one of those bands that has, you know, 150,000 followers or even 50,000 followers for that fact. You know, it's, it's a good chance that a good 20, 30 percent of your fan base that's following you on socials is going to go to your uh, YouTube channel and watch the video. And dude, it's a proven fact. Videos sell records. They move streaming numbers. You know, I mean, physical sales aren't what they used to be anymore. I mean, you know, obviously you drop the video and you would see SoundScan climb like 100,000. Those days are long over. Now you see your your YouTube hits go up like 50,000 and your streaming numbers go up super huge. And, you know, the fan base that still wants a physical disc, well, they're going to go out and they're going to buy it.
2: Yeah, I, I hear you. And we'll get into a, a lot of this as we go. Let me, but I got to start off with the Eric Carr interview. What's your, uh, your what's your memory of, of going to that interview? I know you had mentioned that Eric was coming off of like a lot of promotional appearances that day.
3: Yeah, well, I was the director of national metal promotion for Polygram Records from '89 to '91, and when I started, uh, the Hot in the Shade record had just come out. So, uh, you know, obviously, Gene and Paul were a little tough to nail down to get to do any interviews. And Bruce was in LA and I had a lot of stations that were in like the New York market and the whole Metro area that wanted to get somebody in studio. Now I had met Eric, you know, a year or two before that, just at one of the clubs, he wasn't on the road and, uh, he was just out and about and I had met him and, you know, I kind of, kind of sort of became friends with him because I would see him around when he wasn't on the road. He was always going to shows and he was at clubs. And, uh, You know at one point he had given me his number and when i started at the label he came up to the office and i said i'm over here now (laughs) so (laughs) that's how that whole thing kind of came into play and uh you know i asked him if he'd be interested in maybe going out and doing uh, some in studios and he was totally game to do it so you know we set up a whole bunch we went to wbab in long island and we did you know we did NEW in new york and WSOU and WRTN and you know WFUV in the Bronx and you know WCWP, which is a college station. We did a whole bunch of stations. And dude, he was a total trooper. You know, he's like, "Let's do this." And uh, you know, I, I have the audio recordings from most of those interviews. Oh, cool! And uh, you know, when you go back and you listen to it, I mean, dude, he knocked them out like a pro. And you know, he, he had a pretty quirky sense of humor. <laughs> So, I I mean, you kind of had to get to know him to really understand his sense of humor. And at that point, everything was like, okay, you know, you kind of just chuckled at it and laughed because you knew he was busting somebody's balls at some point. (laughs) For some reason, they just never got it, you know? Which I think, you know, that's the irony of it. It's pretty funny when you bust somebody's balls and they don't get it. That just is an invitation to keep doing it even more, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah. And the the, the host of that show was... I'll just say dry, and that's probably an understatement. Very dry type of, of talking, and uh, Eric. But Eric just kept needling the guy every time he did.
3: Well, I mean, it was you know, it was a low end FM station. It was a commercial station, um, you know, and obviously he, uh, he he was doing the show there for a while, you know, because before I worked for the label, I remember listening to the show. So, you know, and a lot of guys really got their careers started there. You had Motley Stew. And a whole bunch of other dudes, you know, and Butch. I mean, everybody kind of moonlighted around the Midnight Metal crew, you know, and it was the same thing at other stations like at WCWP and WSOU and FUV in the Bronx. Everybody, you know, like their friends would come in moonlight and answer the phones. And before you know it, they're like a year later, they were working in the industry, you know, so that was kind of your foot in the door and, you you know, hey, I, I just met some people. Let me see if there's a job opening somewhere.
0: All right. That's pretty
3: cool. So what to,
2: to go into this business like uh, just describe how do you end up doing this type of job where you're ba- so I mean was your job essentially you'd work for the label and you would just pitch the band to radio stations or, or work on promo stuff or, or how do you get into that business to start with?
3: Oh, well, you can't really there's really no school to go to um you know when I was in college You know, you could take journalism and broadcasting classes. And one of the key things most of our professors always said that there, you know, a good 75 percent of what you're going to learn, you're not going to learn in school. You actually have to go out and find a job and work in the field. But it's the basic fundamental that you get if you write for the campus newspaper or if, you know, you program a music director for the campus radio station or uh, you go to work at a record store. You know, then obviously you're talking to all the buyers and the retail cats at a label, whereas writers are talking to publicity and college radio is talking to promotion. So really the only way to learn the gig is to get a job and start. But you know, you learn early in your career that you're not gonna learn what you need to know going to school. You have to go out and, you know, intern somewhere or just find a job. And that that's really how you you get your start. Yeah. So um I mean, it's a pretty tough gig if you look at it, because not every radio station likes every record. You know, so I I can go over five or six records with a station and they'll maybe only like one or two. And those are the ones you're going to get on. You know, it's the freedom of college, especially college and public and community. It's that freedom, that liberty that you have, that the, the PD has who does the show to pretty much just play whatever they want, not really care about well, I don't have to worry about market share and I don't have to worry about a CUM or anything else. It's like, I just think it's a good song and I'm going to play it.
2: And, and that's kind of like, that's kind of a dying art. It seems like in a, in the mainstream radio business. Cause like I have friends that are DJs and Aaron here used to be a DJ in, in uh, central Wisconsin and uh, you know, in the nineties. And it's just that whole thing of now it's, it's just, it's playlist, it's program mm-hmm. playlist and like breaking something new is almost impossible these days. I mean, do, why do you think that's because most people just want the same familiar songs as background music or what do you, why do you think that is?
3: No, nah, I mean, dude, a lot of new artists kind of broke. And I mean, I'll, I'll use Ginger as an ideal example. You know, we work Cloud Factory. We worked a couple of records for Ginger in America, you know, and then they re-released the stuff that wasn't here. Um what really what really broke that band big time was Sirius XM, liquid metal. Mm. You know, Jose fell in love with the band and kind of took them under their wing. And Music Choice was already all over, giving us 25, 30 spins a week. And a lot of commercial stations were all over it. And then when the band came over here to tour, everybody kind of witnessed what they were all about. And then the band blew up, you know, and, and that's that's kind of sort of how you do it. Now, it does happen but it doesn't happen with everybody. It always seems to take sometimes two or three records for that to happen. But, you know, in their case, it happened on the second record here. So, you know, now you show up at a ginger show, which actually there is a tour coming. They're going out with All Hell the Yeti. Uh, you know, and when that tour starts, you know, instead of playing small clubs, you're going to be seeing them at a 800 to 1,000 cap rooms, at 1,500 cap rooms, and then it's going to be close to sell out.
1: So how does that transfer over as far as like sales for the band, you know, that you get a lot of recognition, you know, from getting played on XM or different places you can pick it up, but in this era of music sales, like you said, you know, the hardcore fans are going to go out buy the CD, you know, or the album, and then there's always streaming and downloads. How does that is that good for a band nowadays? Can a band survive on all that? Well, it kind of depends on
3: the stature of the band. I mean, if, if you want to compare it to a band like Metallica, I mean, they stream. They'll post a new video, and within like 24 hours, there's like 4.5 million views. You know, and you realize you're getting paid royalty on all of that, plus Spotify and Apple Music and, and you know Discord and all the other streaming services. It's huge. For a new band, uh, they're definitely not going to pay their mortgage off of their streaming numbers, you know. So the only way for a new band to really make any money or do anything is their merch sales, you know. And so when they go out and they tour, and I mean, I emphasize this so much when I talk to the fans. If you really dig a band, support the band. Buy merch, buy tickets to the show. And if you really, really want to support the band, buy the album or the vinyl From the band's merch table so that, you know, they get home and they got some money because, dude, you know, when a band's on the road, you know, people fail to realize, like, I've been in business 30 years with Skateboard and 75% of what I make goes back out the door in overhead. But when you're a band on the road, probably more like 80% goes back out the door in overhead. So, you know, that's why you always see a tip jar out for gas money for the band you know, to at least get a day room so they can shower or get something to eat if there's no catering. Small tours, you're doing it in a van and a trailer, and, dude, that's pretty tough, you know, compared to a bigger band, you know, and I mean, gig money. I mean, if you're a bigger band and you're getting, like, 250 k cash guarantee per show, okay, you can afford a $10,000 a day tour bus. But if you're a band getting, like, 2500 cash guarantee or less, which is the case with developing bands, dude. You're doing it in a van and a trailer, and it's like you're eating Mickey D's every day. You know, that's why guys come home and they're like, after like a month on the road, guys come home and they're home for a month because they're sick. You know, they get, you know, they get a cold, they get a flu, they get bronchitis, they get whatever. And, you know, it's like they just need like a month to recover from eating like shit, <laughs> you know, yeah. getting treated like shit and making no money.
2: I Well, Well, uh, with your job, so you you were the Polygram rep when Hot in the Shade came out by Kiss, um, yeah. which is an interesting time in the band's history because they were, you know, they were kind of coming off of a lull through, you know, crazy nights and then Hot in the Shade comes out and, and you, so you got to witness this yourself. From what I gather, the album wasn't a strong seller right out of the gate, but then when Forever got released as a single, it just kind of blew up what are your memories of marketing that record? And was there a lot of pushback from radio to not want to spend the band until forever broke?
3: Not really. Um, I mean, kiss has a huge loyal fan base, especially at radio. And, um, you know, on the college side, you know, it kind of depended. I mean, if you were talking to a station that, that did a black or a death metal show or a thrash show, uh, You know, I mean, if it was a black metal show, 10 to 1, they were going to play KISS because of the stage theatrics. And black metal heads were always all about KISS. Yeah. Um, But, you know, a lot more of the mainstream college shows that played hard rock, it wasn't very difficult to get on. But one of the key selling points, which was always a key selling point, was Headbangers Ball. Once they added a video... Uh, dude, we would see sound scan numbers jump in like two or three weeks. Now, you have to remember, back then, you weren't shipping like 1,000 or 2,000 units or 5,000 units. Back then, you were shipping like between 500 and 750,000, you know? And uh, you were doing close to that first week sales. And if a band didn't come close to that and you went out on the road, Then got the video on Headbangers Ball and still didn't have the sound scan base. Usually it got dropped, you know. In Kiss's case, it was different. You know, Headbangers Ball jumped on the video and uh, obviously the uh, sales numbers doubled, which I thought was a beautiful thing. It was kind of cool being able to authorize a gold plaque for myself. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) If you want a plaque, you know, it has to be authorized for the RIAA through the label. But being that I worked for the label, I just filled out the form and signed it myself <laughs> and sent it in, you know. And I just thought it, was it is cool, cool You
2: know, cool. <laughs> So do you have a Platinum Award for the Beatles' White Album? I'm just
3: asking. <laughs> yeah. No, but I do have a Platinum Returns Award for Spinal Tap. Smell the glove. Do you? <laughs> yeah, so if you know anybody that hasn't seen the movies, you know, Platinum Returns. Because if you're yeah. remembering the movie Arnie Fufkin, you know, they didn't sell any records That's but right. they shipped a million <laughs> records. So we made a Platinum Returns Award as a joke, and only two people in the country have them, me and Ian O'Malley, who did the shop on WNEW in New York. Because he was in my office when I was ordering them. And he goes, Dude, you gotta get me one. You gotta get me one. So so you know, I ah, screw it, dude. I mean, it was seventy seven dollars. I got two of them. You know, so I think we're <laughs> the only two people in the country that actually have those and i hang it up and you can always tell a rookie when they walk into your office and they look at that they're like it did that good and i'm like oh my god yeah, dude watch the movie and funny. get the <laughs> joke okay
2: I- <laughs> <laughs> oh man. yeah and i guess that that arty fucking scene probably hits close to home I, have you ever witnessed some signing sessions that went that badly
3: um not really uh you know most most of the in stores that that i've been to have done pretty well. The only thing that I've seen that like stopped the big in store was uh, actually like really bad weather. Like there was like a foot of snow on the ground, or it was raining. And I mean, when we did the "Count One" record by Peter Chris, oh, you did that. We did a uh, in store at Slip Disc Records in Valley Stream, which is literally right down the block from my office. And uh, when I got down there, there was a line four or five blocks long and uh, going around the corner to get in. So and that was the same night that he was playing in Staten Island. So uh, I mean, he was at the in-store. I think he started at I think noon, and he didn't get out of there until about four o'clock and they got there and they had a whole doors so the band wow. could sound check. That's good. Wow. I, and I mean, dude, you're talking, yeah, it's Peter Chris, like the drummer from Kiss, you know, So yeah, people are going to be there. and you know, same thing with like even with Bruce Kulik's uh, you know solo records, which we did. You know, a while back, dude, we came walking out of Air studios and there were like fans downstairs waiting, you know, waiting for Bruce to come out so they could get photos and autographs. And dude, some guys, some like rabid fans are just pulling like five albums out of, out of a bag, like asking them to sign everything, you know, and it's like after a full day of work, dude, all I want is like a strong freaking whiskey and a cheeseburger, you know,
2: right? <laughs> You have worked with uh, Ace Fraley recently on some of his yep. more recent releases.
3: Yep, we've uh, we've done the uh, Ace Fraley solo record for Entertainment One, and Ace is cool. You know, I mean, he's uh, I'm not going to say he's difficult, but he's selective. You know, when it comes to radio and press, he's selective. You know, he doesn't want to talk to a cat who's working from his parents' basement doing a fanzine, but he does want to talk to syndicated radio and podcasts and you know, commercial stations that had like either a metal show or a morning show or something. So, yeah, he was, um, you know, he was pretty cool to work with. Plus, you know, I mean, I I do have some photos floating around on my hard drive from that whole campaign, the last few campaigns we did. And, uh, dude, he was great. He's like, hey, you need me to sign stuff for your stations? I'll sign it. So we'd walk in and hand him a shitload of glossies and he would sign it, personally sign everything and we'd send it out to him. And yeah, dude. Yeah, he was, Ace was great.
1: You were part of marketing the Anomaly record. Was that cool to be able to kind of push the return of Ace Frehley since it's been so long?
3: Well, it wasn't. I wouldn't really call it a return. You know, Ace is the legend. And obviously, anybody who's a Kiss fan or grew up in the 80s or 90s and listened to hard rock or hairband or, you know, anything within that realm, you know, Ace Frehley is kind of like a household name. So when, you know, when Anomalies came out, it wasn't really that difficult. Stations were like, oh, this is amazing. I got to have an interview. Hey, can you get me something signed? Hey, um, the, you know, the tour's coming through. Can you get me on the list? Is there going to be a meet and greet? You know, and it wasn't really that difficult. Stations adapted to it like right away.
1: Nice. That's cool.
3: Yeah, I, dude, I, you know, those are the kind of records that are the easiest ones to work. You know, you can just. Yeah, this is what I have. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm on it, and I'm like, oh, good. You know, I didn't really have to like push too hard. You know,
2: well, and I and we're both big Alice Cooper fans, and you've done several of his his albums as well. Uh, what what's your experience working with that guy?
3: Uh, Alice is great. I mean, as far as he's as with Alice, he's a pro. Um, mm-hmm. I could ask him like to do something, and he'd do it. You know, I mean, a- after show when he's doing a signing or it's like a meet and greet. You know, we'd leave passes for some stations, especially some of the college stations. And Alice was really cool. He would always accommodate. You know, if you look at the old school artists like Ronnie James Dio, you know, and Alice Cooper and, you know, obviously the late Eric Carr and, you know, all of them, you know, one thing they learned is if you want to be an asshole, you're going to get treated like an asshole. So don't be an asshole. Yeah. You know, always, always be polite to people and they'll always remember that you were a good guy. And, um, you know, it means a lot in the long run, you know, especially when, you know, you're out on the road and you and your ticket sales are hurt. Yeah. But Alice was always great. You know, I uh, I always enjoyed working with Alice. He was um, he's a pleasure to work with. So and, it, and cool. it, I guess like the good thing was is uh, after we finished up one of the campaigns, uh, he personally sent me an autographed picture of, with the album cover to hang up on my wall in the office
1: nice that's awesome
3: yeah nice little handwritten note with the uh with the photo i was like dude this is awesome so you know i had dropped back in and told him thank you and i hung it up in the hallway coming into the office so yeah he's um he's definitely a pleasure to work with
1: that's very cool we got tickets we're gonna be seeing ace fraley and alice cooper here in just a couple of weeks
3: oh you're gonna have a good time dude oh yeah Those those guys put on a great show i gotta tell you dude Most of the old heritage rockers sound better now than they did back in the day.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, testament to that is Accept, and I know you guys have done some stuff with Accept, and that's how they are now. I mean, some of the last few albums they've come out with, really, I mean, it stands tall with the classic stuff.
3: Oh, big time. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Aaron. What's your take on Stalingrad?
1: There's some great songs on it, but... I mean, if we're going to talk about except talk about the one that just came out this year, holy shit!
3: Oh yeah, oh yeah, dude. They've uh, you know Wolf is another one. You know, I mean, he just turned sixty years old. He's been around forever. You know, he knows how to talk to people. He knows how to treat people. You know, he's an absolute pleasure to work with. Management is great. Like the whole camp is amazing, and they'll they'll do whatever you ask them to do if it's going to mean something and it's them sell records and sell a show makes sense yeah
2: yeah they're they're professional all the way around and and i love what you know i loved them with with udo but i like them with with uh mark yeah. tornillo also i mean i think he fits fits in like a glove as a singer you know
3: i do have to say mark tornillo was a shoe in fit for that band Shoe in fit yeah not the you know when tt quick dude i'm a huge Medal of honor fan that album is amazing and everyone's like what's that i'm like oh my god You need to go back and listen to Medal of Honor by T.T. Quick, you know, and if you listen to that, you hear you kind of hear why he's a shoe in fit for that band.
2: Yeah. Like, like, what are some of the artists you've worked with where you were kind of like somebody pinch me because I'm actually working Um, with this person?
3: Judas Priest. You know, we started with Priest in the uh, early to mid 90s and Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath. And those were three staples when I was coming up, you know, through high school. And then getting into college, it was like pre-Sabbath Maiden. You can't go wrong with that. Diamond Head, because I was always a big Diamond Head fan. You know, Sabbath put the hook in me for turning me into a metalhead, But then I started discovering other bands like Diamond Head and Anthrax and, you know, other cool stuff. And Metallica through the early 80s. And, uh, I mean, that was it for me. But Diamond Head was there. Uh, Testament, Exodus, Slayer. I mean, dude, all of those bands are just like staples if I'm going to go to something, especially the Ronnie James Dio era Sabbath, you know, because I love Ronnie so much.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we we did an interview with Vin, Vinny Apicey and uh, just had him at the convention that I run, and, and what a super nice guy. I just love that guy.
3: Next time you see him, ask him the story when I brought him Ganolis at Jones Beach.
2: okay
3: (laughs) (laughs) he called me he's like when are you getting here and I said I'll be there give me an hour or two and he goes "All right. don't forget the ganoles just kidding around so I stopped at the pork store and I got like a huge slice of soup de and a mozzarella and got some ganoles and I brought it to him and he was in the dressing room all the way on the other side backstage at Jones Beach so I go in and I knock on the door and I put everything down and he's like holy shit I was just kidding around. I was like, that's all right, you can eat good later. You know? And he and he and he put the stuff in the refrigerator in the dressing room and he goes, I don't have a lock. Nobody better come in here and steal it.
1: <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> he told us that uh Dio what they would do backstage is they'd notice that everybody was eating up all their stuff, so they started putting price tags on things and nobody would mess with their food. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You know, I, I don't remember much of that because, like, I never really bothered with catering. Um, I mean, my very first tour, ironically, was Ronnie James Dio and Invey Momstein. Wow. And I was always a huge Invey fan because, obviously, I played guitar. So Invey was, like, the master of, like, doing arpeggios in 30 seconds, you know? Yeah. So, you know when our new England local came down to do national, my boss called me in the office and said to me, well, you need to pack a bag and go out on the road with Ingve and cover a radio for for the Northeast. And I said, great, he's out with a uh, deal. And he goes, yeah. I says, well, when do I have to leave? And he goes, tomorrow morning, meet the tour bus at 9.00 AM at the park of Meridian. And I was like, dude, I'm there. Can I leave early so I can go home and pack?" You know, I was like, dude, I'm not saying no to that.
2: Wow. Yeah.
3: So, you know, most of the times, and from that point when I was backstage, and obviously, you know, I was out with the guys, so I had catering. If I'm not out with the band, I, you know, pay no mind to catering because that's for the artists right? and the crew and the working staff and everybody else. So by the time I get to the venue, I probably already had three slices of pizza and a frosty beverage, you know, <laughs> so <laughs>
1: Yngwie's kind of got a reputation, of kind of a tough guy to get along with sometimes. So how is that, getting thrown into a situation like that right off the bat?
3: I had no problem with him. I, You know, from the first time I met him in the office and he did radio interviews for us, he was nothing but a pleasure. You know, and then when we were out on the road, he was always mad cool to me. But I guess people treat me a little bit different because I'm not a suit. You know, I'm actually I came up as a fan and now I'm industry. And uh, one thing you learn in radio and records and PR is there's no photos, no autographs. You know, there's not a, no fanboy, you right. fangirl stuff going on. Yeah, you are You know, and uh, you, you treat the artist like a human being. And most of the times they come back and treat you like a human being. And it's totally cool. So he was always very cool with me. And, and I get along great with him. You know, I, I, t- I don't talk to him often, but we just wrapped up the last Dingbape campaign, and uh, I had spoken to him, and he was great.
1: Cool. And that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you are the business side, but you're not, like, dressed like a businessman. You know, they can look at you and say, okay, this guy's here taking care of me. He's helping me. He's working for me. I'm working with him. But he, you look at this guy and tell he's the real deal. He's not just doing this and has no idea or care about what this is.
3: Yeah, well, you know, the band always knows who knows their career and who doesn't. You know, so now you're going to sit down and start talking about the first record. You know, you're going to talk about an artist's career and then, you know, the albums, you know, the songs, you have everything, you know, right away. The band's going to know that right away. You know, you show up, you know, wearing a suit, and know nothing about the band. You know, it's kind of embarrassing, not only for the company, but for the, the individual themselves. You know, if you're going to work with a band, you might consider if you don't know anything about their career, you know, go in and get all their stuff and listen to every record that they have. Know, you know, know their career, know who's played on their records, know all about them. You know, and that's one of the things that, you know, you get from being a fan, you know, and, and, you know, you notice like a lot of industry guys, dude, some guys just they get jaded and they're like, well, I don't have to do this. Yeah, that's all right. I know what I'm going to do on this. We're good. No, it never works that way. You know, you always have to know the artist and their career and, you know, where to take it because that's that's going to be detrimental to not being able to get your job done.
1: Makes sense to me. I know one band that really appreciates what skateboard marketing can do, and that's Clutch because you guys have done a lot of stuff with Clutch, and that's an awesome band.
3: Oh, uh, yeah. We, uh, we like, back from Electra and Atlantic and stuff, we did all the early stuff for them, and they're great. You know And I mean? You know, Neil and those guys get on stage and they throw down. My favorite clutch record by far is still Elephant Riders, you know. Elephant's still my favorite, but um, they, uh, you know, they just, they, they're a very unique yeah. band. And when they get on stage, everything they do is very raw, you know. yeah. And, you know, their records, they have that raw sound to it. Yeah, it's mixed and it's mastered. It sounds great. It's clean and polished, but you can tell it's still very raw. And uh, dude, I just love that. I love listening to a record and hearing a raw sound and uh, especially live stuff from back in the day, because there was no triggers. They didn't have 90% of the stuff you had in the studio. So if you couldn't play, you couldn't write, you couldn't sing. The fans knew it right away. And the album sucked, you know. Mm -hmm.
1: That's
3: why if you listen to old Sabbath and Rainbow and, you know, a lot of those old records from back in the day, Some of the old white snake albums, you know, slide it in. Dude, they've you know, yeah, they were all like well produced, but the you know, everybody in the band knew how to play. Yeah. Especially UFO. I mean, I don't know if you guys are UFO fans, but yeah, I I love UFO. Yeah, me too. Unsung
1: band here in the United States for sure.
3: Oh, dude. I saw them at the limelight, it was sold out. And uh I got in through the back door through security. You know, I mean, they, they knew that I worked for a, for a label and what we did for a living. So they let me in and, dude, you just could not move in the place. And if there was a fire, dude, I hate to say it, nobody was getting out of there. <laughs> wow. You know, and, dude, uh-huh. it was one of the most amazing shows I've seen to date. Well, just sitting there watching Shanker throw down on rock bottom you know, wow. the guy's just delivering in a small venue. And the last time I saw the band do that was the old Palladium in New York on 14th Street. Mm-hmm. And that was eons ago. Dude, I was like 14 years old. Nice. You know?
2: Yeah, the Palladium. And uh, yeah, that that's where, uh, speak, to bring it back to Eric Carr, that's where he did his first Kiss gig in 1980 when yeah. he joined the band.
3: I mean, it's now belongs to NYU. NYU owns the most real estate in New York, ironically. And I think it's NYU dorms and something else. And I pass it all the time because Irving Plaza is right around the corner. And I pass it, I look at it and I'm just like, oh, you know, it's like, you know, you want to cry because it was such a great venue.
2: Yeah. So did you did you come up in New York? You grew up there?
3: Yep. I was born and raised in New York, born in Queens. And then we moved to Long Island uh, when I was a kid and I went to high school and stuff out here. And uh, I was in a band. And I got a job in a recording studio, and I had a scholarship to Center for the Media Arts right out of high school. And uh, that's kind of sort of where my career started, you know, early 80s. And, uh, you know, it was cool, you know, but you realize, you know, being in a band, you're not gonna pay the bills until you get signed. And back then, we didn't have the infrastructure that you have now to make a record and just do it on your own. If you didn't get signed, you needed a lot of money, dude so uh i went to work for a record company and it kind of worked out for me so i'm pretty happy yeah i worked for combat and effect records and uh i interned briefly when i was in college at cbs which was pretty cool over the summer you know and i worked for uh, cmj media trade magazine so uh i kind of made the rounds coming up you know when I, i started early so it was good so by the time i was finishing up school an opportunity called i'm like well Man, I just walked right into a major label gig, you know?
2: New York in the early 80s. So, I mean, were you around for any of those, like, early Metallica shows when they first got signed by Johnny Z? Yeah.
3: Actually, I was. I was at the famed Metallica Rods Vandenberg show at the Paramount in Staten Island. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I was there. And ironically, Frank White, the photographer, was there. And so was Steve Harris. Huh. So Frank grabbed the quick photo op with Steve Harris and years later, he had called me, and he's like, dude, I'm looking at this picture, and there's this guy with hair blown out and a mustache drinking in a beer wearing white sneakers. I can swear it's you. So he sent me the photo, and ironically, lo and behold, yeah, it was me drinking a beer right behind him. Wow. <laughs> oh, I had wow. Said to him, "I was like, dude, yeah, I was there with one of my friends. He broke his foot playing hockey. I had a drive, and who was standing next to me? A guy on crushes with a broken foot. So that's how we knew. So, I actually have the photo it's It's pretty funny, but wow that was the last show that David did with Metallica, you know, yeah. and uh, I know they had a they had a rehearsal space at the music building in Queens, briefly, and uh, I saw them at Lamores, you know, and I saw them like on a lot of their club gigs till uh, Master of Puppets came out, you know, and then at that point, their career just skyrocketed, and they started playing arenas, you know, yeah. I wow. know, I'm very happy for the guys because they worked really hard to get to where they are.
2: I just can't imagine how mind-blowing it must have been to see those guys in those days because they were unlike anybody
3: else, right? Not at all. Oh, dude, it, you know, them and the Rods were like amazing. But I was a Rods fan. I always liked the Rods. But, you know, ironically, the, my friend that I was at the show with, when Metallica went on, I went right up to the front and like a jackass, I didn't take pictures and I had my camera. I just hung out and watched the show. Yeah, you know, and I got back, and he goes, "Dude, that band sucked." I says, "What do you mean?" (laughs) I thought they were were freaking awesome, dude. Good old school thrash metal. You don't get any better than you don't get any better than thrash. And well, it wasn't old school at the time; it was like new school because it just started. Yeah, you know. And ironically, years later, like twenty years later, I ran into him, and he was wearing a Metallica shirt. And he goes, "Yeah, it's one of my favorite bands." I says, "Remember when I took you to the Vandenberg Rod show?" I said, you sense, suck. That was Metallica. Now you're wearing their shirt and you think they're like, and they're your favorite band. So it kind of gave me great joy to call somebody out on it. You know, dude, I was uh, like, yeah, yeah busted. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. That guy's a poser for life.
3: Yeah. <laughs> you busted for life and I'm going to tell everybody that story.
1: You're forever <laughs> fucked. You know?
2: <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, my God.
1: Man, I'm just, Chris sent me this list of all the different skateboard uh, clients over the years. I guess you'd call them clients, right? The bands? Yeah. It's massive. I mean, you guys have helped push some of the greatest hard rock and metal bands and albums for many, many, many years. I mean, I encourage everybody to go check out you know skateboardmarketing.com and uh, take a look at this list one time. Like, it would, if we went through this whole thing, we could do 20 episodes, you know, maybe you ought to start your own podcast, but I'm curious <laughs> out of all these bands, all these artists and all these albums, is there one on here that really stands out as something you really believed in, and really thought was going to be huge. And for whatever reason, just never caught on what, what's the number one, one that really blows you away. That didn't get huge.
3: Uh, I mean, that's kind of a tough call because there was a, there's a lot of great records on there, you know, and there's a lot of smaller bands, you know, they did one or two records and they just, they never caught on, never saw the light of day and guys went on to bigger bands. And I mean, early in my career with, uh, with skateboard, I mean, one of the most memorable bands that we worked with was Kilgore Smudge, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, but they're from Providence, Rhode Island. They were a post-war band. You know the first album was Blue Collar Solitude. I'm at awe that that band didn't get bigger than what they really were. You know, in a search for reason was the band's second record. And it was amazing. They got out on OzFest, and within a matter of like two weeks, there was sound scanning like a couple of thousand units a week. Now we're talking nineteen ninety-eight. Now who was out on the out on the road with them? Ultra spank, system of a down. I mean, that whole second stage at Ozbest that year was phenomenal. And, um, you know, Kilgore was just like one of my, they're definitely one. I can't pick the top 10 favorite bands. They have to be like a top 500, and they're definitely in the top 500. <laughs> Dude, I, I just, the Pacifier album, the Pacifier EP, it was just amazing. You know, and then the band started to really get notoriety, and then they broke up, and they, uh, they signed with TVT and they really started to go somewhere. And then the band broke up and I'm like, oh, dude, you know. But then, you know, Tom went on to play with Hell Yeah. So, I mean, playing with Vinnie Paul doesn't suck, you know. Right. And Vinnie's a great, Amazing. you know, Vinnie was a great dude. I love Vinnie. He called me Grandpa Munster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like, dude, when I did to get my, my head buzzed, you know i was stuck getting the frizzle on the side of my hair like you know grandpa monster from the munchies he's always got that that grazzle coming out from over his ears so i guess you know he was just kidding around with me and i was just like well all right you know so every time i would see him he's like grandpa monster y'all come on let's have a, let's have a shot of whiskey you know <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice oh man. did you did you ever go drink for drink with Vinny vinnie Paul? no
3: that can be extremely no. dangerous, my brother. You're <laughs> yes. with Those guys, I mean, when we did the damage plant stuff, you know, I was at, you know, you know, at, at the shows, I mean, God, you know, between him and dime, you know, those guys would power drink um, after the show. And I mean, they drink before the show, but after the show, they would start power drinking. And by then I was half in the bag and I'm like, man, I oh, have a wow. bottle of water, please? You know? My liver was waving a white flag.
2: <laughs> oh man! Was awesome. well, so you so you were out on the road with Damage Plan
3: or with them? No, uh, just when uh, the band was out doing shows. Obviously, you know, I had we had meet and greets, and I had stations mm-hmm. at the show. And obviously, because we did their radio promo, I wanted to be there. You know, so mm-hmm. you know the band was phenomenal live, and dude, I mean, I got up, you know, that morning, you know, when when. was murdered that you know the night before I I got up that morning and I got a phone call from one of my friends and I was just getting into the office and signing in and uh, she's like dude look at the news and it was the first thing that hit me right in the face at Al Rosen Village and I was like fuck dude what happened you know Mm. so um, that was kind of a pretty stiff blow for me that kind of hurt because you know I knew Dime pretty well and he was a really good guy
2: yeah yeah, we um we were friends with a photographer named Chad Lee who shoots a lot of concerts and stuff, and he was pretty good friends with Dime. And I always loved the way he put it. We interviewed him about his time with him, and I, I said, and I just mentioned, I was like, I really wish I could have met him. And he says, No, I wish you could have met him. And he's like, That's kind of the best way to put it. He's like, Because he just once you met him, he kind of left a mark on you. You just, you know, he he was one of those people that you just wanted to be around.
3: Yeah, he was uh, he was a lovable dude. You know, he made friends with everybody. He was chill with everybody, and uh, he just wanted to hang out and have a good time, get on stage and throw down and be the riff master general that he was. You know, and right. I mean, the original riff master general by far is Tony Iommi. You know, and I don't think mm-hmm. anybody's going to top that. But you know, you got to go like right behind Tony Iommi. I'm going to throw Dimebag Darrell right in there amongst the list with a lot of other guys. I mean, Dime was a riff master. G- general dude he would just pick up his axe and start throwing down with these crazy riffs and before you know it that had a stellar song i'm like oh well that's pretty cool you know <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah he he was one of a kind Yeah, he well, so, just
3: got it and yeah he was definitely a one of a kind
2: and you mentioned tony iomi um you know you did a lot of records with sabbath and different different eras of sabbath too you know even starting with the tony martin era um, What was it like working with those guys, and do you have any particular stories that you can share about your uh, time with them?
3: Well, you know, when we came in, it was like in like on the Forbidden Record and the earliest stuff, which was the Tony Martin era. And uh, Ernie C. from Body Count produced the Forbidden Record, which is a little-known fact. A lot of people don't know that, you know? And uh, that's probably... The Eternal Idol is probably my favorite Tony Martin Black Sabbath era record because nothing is better than The Shining or Glory, Ride.
1: It's a good one. Mm-hmm.
3: But, uh, you know, Tony, uh, Tony was great, you know? And then, you know, when we did the stuff with, with Ronnie, that was better. And, uh, you know, we've obviously worked Sabbath with Ozzy, you know, and that was great. And, you know, we're, we're doing the reissue right now for Technical Ecstasy, you know, for I know... No. And uh, I mean, it's a four CD set. And I literally just got the audio today. And like, before I jumped on this call, that's what I was listening to because I'm like, the fuck, dude, I haven't even heard it yet. Yeah. So I, I'm like, I got to listen to this. And I got through like, you know, I mean, the first disc is the remastered version. I'm like, all right, I've, I've heard Technical Ecstasy like a million times. So I don't need to listen mm-hmm. to it that right now. I got I had to listen to like the Steve Wilson mixes and the live stuff. And I'm like, so good, dude. It is so good. You know, that band is just so unique in every sense of the words where Tony does what he does and Geezer does what he does and so does Ozzy. He does what he does and they're just phenomenal. You know, it's just either you have it or you don't and you can make it sound great and do stupid shit in between and it makes it even more fun. You know, so my most memorable IOMI story though was when we were doing the uh, the Who Cares stuff, he had flown into town and uh, we were doing the whole radio promo tour in different markets. So somebody had met him up in in uh, New England, in, in Boston, and then in Detroit. When he flew into New York, I picked him up at the airport and drove him into the city, got him to the hotel. They, we got him checked in. The next day, uh, I picked him up and uh, I stopped to get him like some water and stuff for the ride out to WBAB. And, uh, you know, we did we did a whole bunch of interviews, but BAB was the very last one with Fingers Metal Shop. So as we're driving back on Sunday night, it's like one thirty in the morning. He passes out in the back of my car with his shoes off, you know, and he's snore, He's soaring wood. He's snoring. It's really funny. And me and his PA were looking at each other, and I was like, should I turn the music on? And he's like, no. And he's the- like, all right, we'll just keep it quiet, you know? So the next morning, I go out to my car, and I'm like, oh, shit, dude. Tony left his water bottle here. So I took the water bottle out, and I put it up on top of my refrigerator, and it's been up there for, like, 21 years or 22 <laughs> years or something or other. The water bottle is still on top of my refrigerator. Wow. <laughs> Dude, I'm like you know you, I'm industry but You know as a fan of Sabbath It's like okay I got Iomi's water bottle Not that it means anything yeah. I'm never going to sell it you know But it's just the point of the matter I'm like I can look at it and to me it's like Oh I remember that yeah, night that was pretty it funny means something to you right. and that's all <laughs> you need Yeah That's it brother it means something to me You know it's like yeah. uh, It's like little, my little token From a promo trip you know
2: yeah, well, it's like you like you said, you you can't fanboy out and ask for autographs and pictures, <laughs> but you can take a water bottle.
3: <laughs> I can take a water bottle that was left in the back seat of my car. Yes, I can. You know? no, but dude, it was yeah, really t- funny. I mean, Sunday night we get back to the city, dude. It's like I don't know, 1:30, 2 in the morning. He's tired, he's exhausted, and he's getting a cab to the airport on Monday, uh, flying out to the next market where the market visits there. And uh, as we're getting out of the car and stuff, there's like a few people walking down the street with baby carriages on Sunday night at like one thirty in the morning in Manhattan. And it turned out to be a friend of mine. And he was like, oh, isn't that Tony Iommi? Hey, Tony, can I have your autograph? Can I get a photo? And I was like, oh, God, leave me alone. You know, I was just like, not yeah. now. You know, and he was like, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, and he accommodated. I was like. We got to get them inside. You know, we got to go. <laughs> For
1: a
2: crowd search <laughs> form. Was that your job a lot of times is kind of fending people off where they're trying to get in from one place to another?
3: Uh, yeah. I mean, you got to realize that we have time restraints. Right. And, uh, you know, we can have something on the schedule uh, at, uh, you know, between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. And our next appointment is at noon. And then if you walk outside a building and there's 20 fans there, you're not on your way till 11:45, okay? Right. So it's not that you know, you don't want to stop and sign stuff, you know, for them. But I have to get them to the next event, you know, the next uh, interview, because then otherwise we're going to be late. The schedule's behind.
1: I got one here I wanted to ask yeah. you about. In the late '90s, you guys did the ECW Extreme Music album. Oh, yeah, the soundtrack. And being a New Yorker, and I was a huge fan of that because I'm a big wrestling fan, and I loved ECW. We used to watch it on TV. But you were from New York, so I was wondering, with this awesome compilation album, did you ever have any interaction with the wrestling promotion or anybody from it?
3: Not really, Not really. We just pretty much did promotion on that. We didn't really have any interviews or anything scheduled. It was just kind of all promotion and then there was a couple of record release parties you know and i mean that was pretty much it fans showed up and we had autographed stuff to give out to the fans and it was cool i mean a lot of records you work that's that's kind of how the promo is gonna go because you can't have the artists in every right. spot everywhere
1: you know it makes a little did you get difficult. any like free passes because ecw was a crazy ass wrestling show from that part of the world did you ever go to any of those shows or anything
3: Actually, I did. Uh, ECW used to do most of their most of their stuff at the Elks Lodge in Elmhurst, Queens. Right. So, you know, I'd go there, and that's where you would see, like, Fozzie and all those guys, you know. Everybody would be there hanging out. And then there was guys that weren't part of the scene that would be there hanging out. And when we did the record release party, I think it was in Philly, I didn't take the bus down because I couldn't stay. So I followed the tour bus down with my car and, uh, you know, we did the pre-show party for the fans, you know, and we got a whole bunch of stuff set up and a lot of the people were there and it was cool. And, uh, then there was the match and the match was cool. So I've definitely seen at least a half a dozen matches, you know? So, I mean, they're they're definitely a lot of fun. Those were like the ECW days were, were pretty rad.
2: Yeah. Nice. Let me ask you this uh, there's uh, there's several uh, motorhead releases you were a part of uh, th- do you have any good lemmy stories-hmm
3: uh-huh. well we started with motorhead on the Bastards record that was 93 they had just come off of the 1914 record and uh, you know management had actually hired us and we kind of became the in-house radio promo company for motorhead from that point moving forward. And I thought it was pretty cool. I was, I felt pretty honored and blessed that, you know, they kind of entrusted me like, all right, you're going to be our guy. You're going to handle everything for motorhead. And that relationship lasted up until 2015 when Lemmy passed. you know? And uh, I mean, dude, I've been to London with the band four times. I've been to Europe with them. Uh, I've been to LA, been all around the United States with them. If there's a band I've seen the most out of every band I've seen live, it's probably Motorhead. I've probably right. seen the band close to 200 times, if not more. I don't know. Wow. 300 times, and you can... 210 times. I don't know. But it's a lot. Because every tour I would see five or ten shows, you know. Wow. And then I've been to Europe four times with the guys. So that was, dude, Europe is a lot of fun with Motorhead, you know. <laughs>
2: I can imagine. I'm amazed your ears still work after seeing them that many times live. Jeez.
3: Earplugs, bro. (laughs) Earplugs. I mean, I got tinnitus about 10 years ago, and I just turned Mm. 55 this year, and I got it about 10 years ago. I'm surprised I didn't have it 20 years ago, you know? Wow.
2: Mm.
3: Earplugs work, bro. So we need our ears. So when I go to shows and
1: stuff, I definitely wear them.
2: We're almost at the hour. Mark, Aaron, do you did you have any more you wanted to add? Oh man, there's so
1: much. We could we could do this for hours and hours.
2: Yeah, there's gotta be an, another appearance if you're up for it.
1: Dude, I'm totally down to come back on.
3: I love doing podcasts. You let me know when you want me to come back on, I'll come back on. You pick like pick a topic with a couple of bands you guys are really into, dude, and we'll like that's what we'll talk about, you know? Right
1: on. Yeah, because I mean, like I said, you guys go to the website and look at this list. I mean, we're not even We've not been able to barely even scratch the surface, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. You got any fun Ugly Kid Joe stories?
3: Oh, yeah. Plenty of great Ugly Kid Joe stories. You know, I started with working with Ugly Kid Joe. That was the last record I set up as a label guy for Polygraph. And uh, I left the label that Friday and uh, started my company like a week later. And the girl that took over for me, that was the first record that she came in and went for ads on, you know. And, um, you know, Whitfield's Whitfield is a lot of fun to work with. You know, he's hilarious. He's got a great sense of humor. And uh, he's just an all around fun guy, you know. And I mean, just watching the video, they got like a blow up sex (laughs) doll flying (laughs) as a kite at the beach you know what i mean it's like, dude, yeah. it's like god you don't get nobody gets the humor i got the humor in it but there's nothing better you know and i mean five years ago we started a new brand called metal contraband and it's a weekly radio trade journal with an editorial section and a, and a radio chart and an ad section and like a photo booth section and a whole bunch of stuff and it kind of you know it kind of took the place of the old trade journals that, you know, had folded back through the eighties and nineties. You know, and obviously that's going in its fifth year of publication. So like if there's any fans that wanna know other stuff that's coming to radio, you can always go to the upcoming ad section and the editorial section at metalcontraband.com and that'll uh that'll shed a little bit of light, you know. And if you want to follow and like the pages for both skateboard and, and metal contraband, obviously You'll start getting our news feeds and all the other stuff because I post daily, sometimes three, four times a
1: day. Oh, check that out, man. That sounds awesome. I used to love getting those magazines when I worked at the radio station and you see like the upcoming stuff. I remember and I've just seen this on your list, too. I remember back in my time in radio when Kid Rock came out with Devil Without a Cause. And I remember seeing the ad in there and thinking, hmm, this looks like it might be something. And got some pushback on it. When I listened to it, I was like, I mean, it, it, it's rap, but it rocks. But that's what people kind of dig right now. I took it to my station managers, and they're like, hell no. And then it wasn't too long. They're like, okay, play it. And then it was huge.
3: What station were you at?
1: I was at WMZK, which was known as uh, Pure Rock Z104 up in central Wisconsin. Yeah,
3: I actually have, MZ. I have the station on my list. So, yeah, we did the Kid Rock records for Atlantic. And, um... Dude, kids a lot of fun to work with, you know, like, I guess we don't have time for a kid rock story now, so I'll have to come on. We're going to have to talk about some rock stories, you know, from Woodstock back in 99. You know, (laughs) I'm sure
1: we got time for one kid rock story. All
3: right.
1: (laughs) backstage,
3: Um, after the set, we're all sitting in the tour bus with Lars Ulrich and a bunch of people. And, uh, that's when Joe C was still, you know, still living. And obviously you knew Joe C. Yeah there's somebody was backstage with a kid's motorcycle, you know, like that little, like 25 CC Honda you buy for like your eight year old kid. Yeah. So, so kid got on it and commandeered it. And Joe C was sitting on the handlebars, riding around the backstage area with kid riding this, with this like kid's bike. And I took some photos of it and I sent them all out to get developed. The photos come back and those photos and those negatives weren't in there. Oh, I, somebody snagged I, have, them. I, have, I have most of the photos from there, but those and a handful of others from some of the sets that I had taken were all missing. Dang. Yeah, dude. So If I find out who took those or I see those published anywhere, I'm going to know they're mine. There's a world of hurt coming to somebody.
2: Wow. So you were at Woodstock 99. Um, did, did Did you see the documentary that came out on it this year?
3: No, I haven't seen the documentary, but sunday right after seven dust played because i'm pretty i'm pretty good friends with the seven dust guys and i worked the first record and i love those guys yeah they're awesome so i stayed to the seven dust set and then i jumped in my car and i drove home and i mean it's not like it's around the corner it was like a five six hour drive dude Mm -hmm. so i get home right and one of my friends calls me and he's like dude where are you and i says oh i don't know what's wrong dude what's up i just got home i was up in woodstock i just walked in the door turn on your tv put the news on and I see freaking riots going on. Yeah. I see fires. I see all kinds of crazy shit and debauchery going on. I'm like, oh, fuck, dude. What happened over here? You know? <laughs> so, I wow. mean, I left, I guess, just in the nick of time because a few hours later, the place turned upside down.
2: Yeah, yeah you did. Yeah, the, the documentary's insane. I couldn't believe how oh. bad it got.
3: It's peace and I was love in both. the 90s. <laughs> yeah, I was at both, 93 and 99. I was at both and uh, 99 was the better of the two because we had a golf cart we could go backstage through the backstage road to get from stage to stage it was pretty dope nice. that's cool that's a hell of a setup. Awesome. cool man this is great yeah chris aaron thanks for having me on dude